For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. The eons surpassed profound and wondrous dharma is rarely met with even in a hundred thousand million kalpas. Now I can see and hear it, accept and maintain it. May I unfold the meaning of the Tathagata's truth. Good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome. For new people, I'm Taigen Layton, the guiding teacher of Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, and I'm very ha- happy to have as our speaker today, Gyoshin Laurel Ross, one of our priests at Ancient Dragon. Um, most of you know her, but for those who don't, uh, uh, Laurel was um, head of urban conservation at the Field Museum for many years and still does many uh, conservation uh, events and uh, bird events and nature walks. And I'll talk more about that later. But uh, Gyoshin, thank you for speaking today. Unmute myself. Can you hear me? Uh, Good morning, Bodhisattvas. I am uh, I'm grateful for this opportunity uh, to be with you this morning. Happy to see some old friends, practitioner friends in the room this morning. And uh, I'm pleased to meet people that are, are new to me. And I'm saying this because um, I'm feeling a little out of touch with the ancient dragon sangha, my sangha. Uh, for quite a few years, um, I brought my body to the Zendo on Irving Park Road multiple times a week to to join the Sangha in Zazen and service and Sashin and, and Doksan and, and other intimate experiences. And um, I can see now that um, maybe I took that precious opportunity uh, for granted after a while. Um, I think I was aware that it was precious to me, uh, but I was unaware that I was taking it for granted. So perhaps I should bow to the coronavirus for uh, waking me up to this. Um, I don't know how many times I have to be reminded of impermanence. I'm, I'm not sure human beings are really capable of grasping impermanence. Uh, we might be wired otherwise, but um since our, our beautiful Zendo was packed up and, and moved and stored, um, many members of the Sangha have been working to, to provide these opportunities for us to practice together virtually. And um, many people have risen to this occasion. And I'm, I'm grateful for your efforts. It has not worked perfectly for me. I may not have made a strong enough effort. Uh, I don't know. I'm I'm really looking forward to a time when we can practice together on cushions that are lined up next to each other against the wall. I miss the smell of the incense on the altar and the sound of the shuffling of the dough on lighting the charcoal. I miss the intimacy. In the meantime, though, uh, I think we're all practicing in in various ways with these these changes uh, as they are still unfolding. And um, I'm sure many different paths are being explored. Um, Maybe we can talk about some of those in the discussion period. Um, I urged myself to uh, look for opportunities in this disruption. So I said to myself, well, maybe you've been in this comfortable rut. Uh, You know, interrogate your practice, but it's been difficult. Uh, It's been different. Uh, It's been confusing. 
and uh, it's still in process. So um, I've been practicing as sincerely as uh, as I can, um, so following my heart, my nose, spending a lot of time outdoors, walking, birding. I've been writing a lot, which is really what I wanted to talk about today. Um, before this time of COVID internment, um, since my retirement a number of years ago, I'd begin to focus on writing as a practice, um, not instead of Zazen, but in relationship with Zazen. Um, I wasn't really sure how to think about the relationship between these two practices. I thought a lot about that. Uh, I read a great interview with Stephen Hagen. Is that the way we pronounce his name? He's the head teacher uh, in Minneapolis of the Dharma Field Zen Center. Um, he's a Dharma heir of Katagiri Roshi. Anyway, he, an interviewer asked him, is discovering your mind in writing different from discovering your own mind in meditation? And his great answer was, well, how many minds do you think you have? <laughs> uh, is a writing mind different from your mind or some other mind that you use for something else? And, and he added, we don't really have any mind at all. We think we have a mind. We think we have this thing called my mind, that it's a particular mind. And then we lock ourselves into the structure of our own creation. It's a little prison we put ourselves in. Once we realize this, then we have complete freedom, whether we're exploring the mind through writing or through just sitting there quietly, observing the thoughts as they come up. It's all the same. It's the same free-flowing mind that's taking place. It can be found and expressed in any activity. So I begin to write uh, what I cautiously called a memoir. I was... Uh, I was reading a lot of memoirs. I loved reading people's uh, reflections on their own lives. I actually made a list of over 200 memoirs that I wanted to read. Uh, really wide range of people like Patti Smith and Sherman Alexie. There's a woman uh, named Patricia Hample, who you might not have heard of, um, she uh, she writes memoirs. She also writes about memoirs. She says, to write one's life is to live it twice. And the second living is both spiritual and historical for a memoir reaches deep within the personality as it seeks its narrative form. And it also grasps the life of the times as no political analysis can. So it started to feel to me like, um, Writing a memoir was something like making a pilgrimage, uh, something everyone should do, you know, once in their life or sometime in their life. So almost exactly two years ago, I, uh, I rashly signed up for a class called uh, Memoir in a Year which uh, to me meant I was making a commitment uh, to writing a book-length story about some aspect of my life and completing it in a specific time frame, you know, memoir in a year. So at the very first class, the instructor passed around a piece of paper and uh, we had to write down a date by which in the very near future, we would send her 100 pages of text. And I thought, Oh, good. Someone's going to really push me to work on this thing. And uh, I, I was pretty excited about it and sort of dove in. And then the, the universe said, uh, not so fast. And a uh, couple months into the class, COVID arrived in our lives. And so we were all reduced to Zooming and I was distracted. We were all distracted and the class kind of deflated. For me, and, and uh, I didn't stop, but I definitely slowed down. I started writing a fair amount of poetry, including haikus, but not, uh, not exclusively. And then I, I tried again. Um, I just returned from an experience. Um, actually, it reminded me of Sashin. It was a, a month-long 
uh, writing residency program in Prague. Uh, and um, my project was working on this memoir. And uh, my focus is on my younger years, which coincided with a particularly interesting time in our country's recent history, the 60s and 70s. And uh, we had class three times a week for a few hours where we read and discussed you know, each other's work. But most of the time for a month, we were on our own to write in our little hotel rooms or in a park or cafe. And uh, we were encouraged to explore this beautiful city that we're in, Prague. Um, we had field trips on Saturdays, which were interesting. Visited ancient sandstone cliffs and Nazi internment camps. It um, it was interesting to feel the presence of history all around me. I mean, there were reminders of history everywhere, recent history, like uh, the Soviet occupation and the Nazi occupation, but also really ancient history, fortresses and castles. Um, some of them were built hundreds of years before Dogen. <laughs> uh, and I began to feel very small. Uh, not in size, but very small in time. It, it wasn't a bad feeling. It was, it was, it was like a little awakening. I, I felt connected to this flow of time. Everything felt connected in this time dimension. So, so I was writing about time, right? I was traveling in time in my own life. Um, but as clear as writing about the tiniest blip, and um, that was a comfort somehow because it became clear that every little blip was part of the whole, and every little blip was necessary and important. So I spent a lot of time just sitting, um, mostly with a laptop in front of me. Um, and walking, and I put a lot of words on a lot of pages. Um, spent a lot of time with, for example, my dead mother, my child self. Um, and I was exploring my voice. Writing teachers often say the key to writing is finding your voice. Um, the voice of the writer needs to be what? Uh, relatable, uh, genuine. I don't know the right adjectives. Um, but um, it's, it, it started to raise a red, red flag for a Zen student because it sounds like presenting a, a constructed self, right? Is a, is a voice a self? And then I found this wonderful essay by Stephen Batchelor, um, who's never been a teacher I particularly resonated with. I always found him a little harsh um, or shrill. But here's something interesting he wrote about voice. We're all familiar with the idea of the eightfold path and right speech. And the way it's normally presented is in terms of what is morally, ethically good speech. It's about speaking gently, truthfully, and honestly. But the word normally rendered as speech in Pali is vaca, E-A-C-A, which is a cognate of the Latin word vox and the English word voice. And he goes on to say, so I started thinking of it not as speech, but as voice. Practice becomes about finding your own voice. Meditation allows us to see how the voices we have internalized from our parents, political leaders, and religious teachers inform the way we speak and think. So he's reminding us that meditation can open up original originality. But then he continues, 
if we have an aspiration to be, let's say, a writer, it's really about finding one's own truth. We have to be able to trust the intuitions and deeper feelings that we don't really understand or even feel terribly comfortable with. It's an ongoing process, but it's a journey that is part and parcel of the eightfold path. Some sentence forms by itself. Something comes to me that I probably wouldn't have figured out with my intellect. I really like this idea, something I wouldn't have figured out with my intellect alone. I mean, that's the satisfaction of the creative process, right? Um, When Susan Sontag was only 28 years old, she wrote that the, the two qualities of a writer, the most important qualities of a writer are first to be what she called a nut, uh, she used words like obsessed, bewitched, intoxicated, crazy. So she said, this is the part of the writer that provides the material. Uh, and then the second quality uh, would be to be what she calls a moron, which is so politically incorrect now. Uh, Anyway, this is the aspect of the writer who's able to lower her defenses and let that material out that the that the nut um, has discovered. So, um, so I realized the something that I wouldn't figure out with our intellect that Bachelor talks about. Um, might not only be original or precious, but might also be difficult. So we need this moron to let it out. Bachelor um, says it a little differently. He says, there's a source of language bubbling up within me outside of my ownership and control. What I do as a writer in many ways is simply hold that space and create a channel whereby these voices can be heard. It's a very strange business, a journey into the unknown. I follow, I surrender to that logic, and I allow that to come forth. And that, to me, is magical. I follow, I surrender, and I allow. And that, to me, is magical. In the Dharma talk I gave in spring about writing haiku, the word magic uh, came up as well. Uh, Clark Strand's a haiku master. And he talks about the mystery and the magic. Uh, you know, haiku is not just descriptive. There's, there's magical insight involved. Um, Bachelor says he's interested in trying to find a Buddhist equivalent of creativity. I think it's the Edis or the Edipada. I never heard of either of this, which is usually translated as magical powers, meaning you can walk through walls, you can fly through the sky, you can become one or become many. I think that's what Edie refers to, creativity, and creativity is a magical art. There's a challenge for us to re-own creativity as an explicit part of the Dharma practice. So there you have it. Meditation is a generative, creative act. It leads to other generative, creative acts. And so been writing and sitting. Um, Ruth Ozeki, who's who's been a guest speaker in our program, comments on this same relationship. Um, she writes fiction, not memoir, but she says, I don't know how I do it without having both the writing and the Buddhist practice together. Uh, the two are, the power comes not from the output, but from the process of writing. She says that they're synergistic. She's one of my favorite writers about time and uh, and magic. If you haven't read A Tale for the Time Being, uh, you might want to check that out. Um, I'm going to go back to the interview with Stephen Hagen to wrap this up. Um, he, he says it pretty, pretty straight. The practice of writing and looking at your life 
seeing who you are is very much a Buddhist practice as well. It's a wonderful practice for stepping outside of ourselves, for stepping back and freeing ourselves from rigid structures that say, you must do it this way. I think it's for each one of us to find our own way. Just realize your own voice, your own mind, and express that. And finally, bowing to Suzuki Roshi. Uh, here's a quote from Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. He was talking about Zazen, but uh, I, I think this applies perfectly to writing practice. You may feel you're doing something special, but actually, it is only the expression of your true nature. It is the activity which, which appeases your inmost desire. So we don't know when we're going to be able to sit together again on a regular basis, but I have a hope that there's going to be some safe and appropriate version of Rohatsu Sashin um, this December and that that I can be part of that. But um, thank you for uh, being here with, with all together this morning. Uh, I've really enjoyed it, even though I sure wish I were looking you in the face. And not on this little screen. Thank you, Gyoshin. Um, yeah, creativity is part of our Sazen practice, definitely. Um, and we have uh, numbers of writers here, as well as other, you know, musicians and other creative people. And all of you are are creative by just sitting Sazen, which is. Um, kind of performance art. Anyway, um, here we are. And within the limitations of Zoom, we can see each other. So, uh, or for the people who are, um, who we can't see, uh, uh, I want to ask people for, to, to uh, give responses or questions or comments for Gyoshin. And if you're not visible, you can go to the um, participants window on the bottom and at the bottom of that participants window is there's a raise hand function. So you can do that. And David Ray, maybe you can help me uh, call on people. So comments, responses, questions for Joshin. Oh, I finally figured out how to put it in gallery view. <laughs> now I can see a bunch of people. Oh, hello. <laughs> Goes on. Do you have a beard, Yosan? Uh, I wouldn't dignify it with that <laughs> down quite yet. Maybe in a week. It's um, been a while. <laughs> you've missed a couple of iterations. Um, <laughs> wow. Yoshin, uh, that was one of the nicest talks I've heard from you, I think. Maybe the nicest. It's really, really, really interesting stuff. People, ideas. Um that are an active part of my life um, or, you know, that I'm involved with, but I do have a question for you and it's, it's not meant to be a snotty question. Um, it's a genuine question that comes out of something I think about all the time about relating um, uh, my different activities, one to each other, and especially to Zazen, which is my core um, activity. Um and it's this thing that you quoted Stephen Hagen and you said, you know, and it was very interesting because and it was the business about, you know, the mind that you encounter in Zazen is exactly the same mind that you encounter in writing. And I can't remember if you said this, but, but by extension that you would encounter in any of your activities. And that's absolutely true intuitively on the one hand, on the other hand, what is it, you know, we, we, that, I would say that Zazen is not one activity among others. For me, it's totally indispensable. Um, and I think for many people, but if we, if we use that frame of, of Stephen Hagen, why wouldn't I just sort of say, God, it's beautiful today. I'm not going to listen to Gyoshin. I'm not going to sit. I'm going to walk and I'm going to encounter the same mind and get exercise at the same time. I don't know if do you understand the question. 
I think I understand in one the way, question. In one way, zazen is an activity among many, and in another way, it's like different. Um, I think it would have been fine if you had gone for a walk. <laughs> and, and it's a beautiful day. I'm looking out my window. I'm going to go for a walk as soon as I'm done here. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't know how to answer that. I mean, I, I feel as if I, I agree with you. It's like, if you say, if you ask someone, okay, so what do you do? And then someone says, well, I'm a lawyer or I'm a, you know, a chef or I'm a teacher. Like, how do you describe who you are? I'm a daughter. I'm a mother. I, I mean, a practitioner is very high on my list of ways I would, you know, identify. But... Oh, boy, I thought I had a little bit of an answer and then it just flew right out of my head. I, I think it's I think we just have to keep, you know, am I the same person when I'm uh, doing something I think of as not particularly important? Like if I'm wasting time, I don't know. I don't know. I'm failing to have any good. I think someone else should answer that. Asian probably has a good answer. <laughs> I'll you did think better about than it. I could have. So thank I, you. I don't think I did. I, I, I feel like it's important for us to keep thinking about that. But I don't know that it's like resolvable. It's like, I don't know that it, we just keep it in the front of our mind and not, hmm without worrying about it. I don't know. Someone ask an easy question. <laughs> I'll ask an easy question. Oh. <laughs> could, could you give it, I was going to ask you later, can you give us the names of those essays, both by Bachelor and by Hagen, and where we might find them? I think, uh, oh, the, the Hagen one was an interview, and I, uh, I don't have it, but I can, I can send it to you. The the essay uh, Tigan sent out last night by like this weird synergy. It's like Tigan, that's what I've been thinking about for the last two weeks. It was so interesting that he sent it out last night. So you have that one, and it's way more than I was able to quote, but it really was uh, startling um, for me. I I have it. I printed it out, and I'm. Read, keeping it on my shelf. Asian, you were you were called on, I think. <laughs> yeah, I, I I I don't know. I don't think I do have a better response, but I was invoked. Um, <laughs> so I'm I'm appearing. Um, you know, this is a really wonderful topic, and I really enjoyed your talk so very much, and I enjoyed Nyozan's question. And um, I can't separate my response uh, from my, you know, response as a psychologist. But all right, you know, all of our all of our stories are just stories, and memory as we know it through Western psychology is actually a, um, an event that's mediated by our present mind. So um, our memories are very much influenced by our, our, our current circumstances and our current state of mind. So our stories that we come up with are not really our true stories. Um, and ourselves, whatever we think ourselves to be, vastly exceeds what, what we are capable of thinking or remembering. So I, you know, my dad wrote his memoirs. He started maybe 10 years ago and um, they've been wonderful to read. And, and so I, I think memoirs are just wonderful, but I've always been afraid to write mine down because I, I don't ever feel like I can put down, you know, kind of the definitive story. So, so I'd be just revising and revising and revising endlessly. 
Um, but you know, that's a, that's a worthwhile thing. Zazen, you know, might involve allowing stories to bubble up, but it also involves letting go of stories. Mm. Um, I love what you were talking about, about Zazen as a creative process, because I think that, um, you know, maybe the side effects of Zazen are a creative process and Zazen itself is, is just, is it's Zazen. Um, if we, if we come away with, with some different understanding that I think that I think of that as being a side effect, but sometimes a helpful side effect, you know, because Zazen isn't about, anything but we sometimes come to understand things in a different way through zazen and and partly by that same process of allowing things to arise and then just letting them go and not not attaching a value of like this is the true story or this is not the true story to them but just you know there's a thought there's another thought and uh you know maybe maybe um it's what we make of our lives off the cushion or our thoughts off the cushion that we can weave into stories. So that that's that's my uh, my best stab at an answer. But I think Zazen exceeds our answers. So I I love what you were talking about uh, that you were talking about memory. Uh, one of the things I've discovered uh, in this uh, memoir writing experience is that I have a lot more memories than. I thought I had <laughs> that starting that that delving into memory uncovers layer after layer of more memories um, that are related. And I I was looking into that and I discovered there's actually an academic uh, uh, field of memory, um, a man, uh, a, a Vietnamese man scholar at I think USC some it's either USC or UCLA uh, has written extensively on the, the the role of memory in interpreting history and he's particularly talking about the he wrote extensively about the Vietnamese Vietnam War because he was a child uh, during the fall of Saigon so he's what in his 50s now, I guess. Anyway, it is a very interesting memory. is a very interesting thing to uh, explore, and I'd be really interested in anything anyone has to share to read about that um, or to learn more about that. Uh, Eva has her hand up. Eva. Thank you for a great talk. Um, so writing was a part of what led me to Buddhism. Uh, uh, but like the deeper I got into my writing practice, uh, looking for my voice, I felt that I was looking for something else. Um, that turned out, I think, to be Buddhism. So I was thinking, for me, I think there is a difference between uh the voice in writing and the voice in Buddhism. I, I don't think I can quite articulate what, but maybe like Buddhist voice or um, whatever you should call it um, is deeper. Like when when I get rid of words, I can I kind of I get deeper. Would you have anything to to say to that? No, I think that's. Thank you for for that. Offering words, words are, you know, what's the difference between making a painting and making a poem? Words <laughs> um, is one better. I don't, I don't think so. But maybe one suits one mind better than another mind. You know, one medium. I don't know. I've always been in love with words. Um, I've always found them I'm going to go back to the word magical even as a child uh, words oh, thank you Eve where are you I'm curious where in the on the planet are you coming from 
I'm in Sweden. Ah. Aha. David Ray. Goshen, thanks so much for your talk. I'd like to ask you about something that you mentioned just in passing. You said something about inner child work, and that has come back up for me lately. Um, through first through a, a mentor that I belong to, and and when 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 a facilitator suggested it to me, my thought was, oh, I've done all that. That's, that's <laughs> the past. All that, you know, therapy, neo-Jungian stuff. And, and I thought, okay, you know, I'm a Buddhist now. I don't really, I don't worry about that <laughs> stuff. And so I, I Googled, you know, to see if there's any connection. And of course, there's a book by Thich Nhat Hanh, an amazing book <laughs> called Reconciliation. And he suggests these beautiful ways of, of integrating inner child work with, with meditation and just, you know, inviting the presence of, of the child and and you know, invite, in, inviting the, 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 the sort of the, the, the face of the child and the and, and, and Buddha's face to look at each other and to bring healing to those to those memories. And it's it's so it's 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 really opening up something that feels like medicine to me. So I'd love to hear anything that you might have to share about inner child work. Um. Well. <laughs> You know, I don't have a particularly scientific approach to it, or maybe not even Buddhist approach to it. I've just been um, putting my pen on the piece of paper and seeing what uh, where it goes. And if you do that long enough, you find yourself crying or um surprised or um mm, upset um you know, it 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 i don't know i'll have to look at that tikmat han uh, to see if there's any you know if that would be a good thing to do but you know i have a picture of my mother pregnant with me <laughs> Which one day I just started looking at, and I thought, yeah, I, <laughs> it, it just it just knocked my socks off to to look at that little bit of reality that was, you know, in this tiny little black and white photograph. It said on the back, it said, and she was smiling. So I thought, oh, okay, she's not, like, unhappy that she's, that I'm alive. You know, it just evoked uh, a lot of stuff. So I don't know. Uh, again, I'm being not all that articulate. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> it's, no, it's, it's helpful to think about that, to uh, uh you know, definitely photographs, uh, childhood photographs have been powerful for me for, for work at various times. Yeah, you know, I found out at a very late age after both of my parents were dead that they only uh, got married the month I was born. And so in 1947, being pregnant and not married must not have been such a great thing for a woman. And I don't know about a man. Um, so seeing her smile <laughs> was a, a relief almost. <laughs> uh, anyway, I, I'm sure there were people on the planet that wished I were not alive at that time. But she was seemed to be okay with it. <laughs> that that's a, an example of a a hard thing that you know it's not a it's not an easy uh, it's not an easy topic to bring up even with oneself. <laughs> um, so anyway. Emily. Hi, um, Laurel, thank you for your talk. Um, Where are you? 
I'm in Chicago. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. Um, something that you said earlier really made me think of, um, you were talking about how much you just love words and that's something that you've always loved. Um, and I, I've been reading uh, um, Stephen Nachmanovich's book, Free Play. Um, and he talks, you know, he talks a lot about Zen, but one thing he talks about is um, like how he, he, he writes that like in order to play with something, like when you love something, you're inspired to play with it. And that playfulness is so much a part of creativity. And he talks about how playfulness can also be a part of meditation and, and Zazen. And I'm just wondering, and so I've been really thinking about playfulness and we were talking about sort of child, childhood, um, like relating to things as a child. And so I'm just really curious what kind of your, how you, how playfulness, I guess, is a part of your practice or is that something you think about? Cause I've been thinking about that a lot. <laughs> how is, how is Zazen like playful and how is the creative process like playful um yeah yeah that's a really great question i should i should sit with the word playful sometimes my my daughter says to me oh mom lighten up (laughs) uh it's not my strong suit (laughs) to be playful just to be perfectly uh honest but um i think my most my what the aspect of playfulness that's most accessible to me is the uh, connecting with nature playfulness so that I can, when I'm outdoors, when I'm in, um, you know, at the lake or in the forest preserves or on the prairie, looking at a bird or something, I feel like the... Uh, the world is a is a lightheartedness to it all, you know. To uh, a, a little shorebird on the on the beach, you know, looking around for tiny little invertebrates to eat. It's a very um, uh, uh, it's with it's it's without it's without what Asia was talking about story. You know, I don't have to I don't have to make it uh, I don't have to make it I don't have to put it in any category. I just be with it, and it is what it is, and I am with it in a very uh, sort of direct way. That that seems playful to me. That's about as playful as I can get. I'm pretty. Serious, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, thank you for the reminder. Well, I mean, I, I find myself often feeling um, like heavy and serious, yeah. and especially when you're working with your medium, if that's words or sound or whatever, you know. So it's, I just find like I need that reminder so constantly, like, because it's very easy. Um, to treat everything with that, yeah, a heaviness that maybe isn't isn't real is is not real. <laughs> that we we yeah that we we lay on it that we lay on it. Music can be another really playful thing. I mean, it, another um, uh, uh, sort of pathway to playfulness to me. Um, it it connects with something. Uh, without burden. Uh, Trying to find the right language for how to describe playfulness. Yeah, unburdened maybe. Is that that good, unburdened? No. I wrote it down. I'm going to try to think about it more. Thank you. And uh, just to mention that Emily is a professional musician, so she may have oh. more to say about that. But, <laughs> but um, I just briefly want to return to Zazen and creativity, which I think are very related. Um, and just as one example, my experience when I'm in the middle of a of a writer writing a project, uh, it happens not infrequently that when I when I'm doing Zazen that 
a sentence or two that's part of the work or even a paragraph sometimes just arises in zazen. Uh, so I think part of zazen is that, you know, there's uh, in the sixth uh, ancestor talks about the connection of samadhi and prajna, but when we're settled sitting, insights arise and they are can be related to any of our other creative activities, whether it's uh, writing or music or bird watching or gardening or, you know, they're cooking that. So uh, there's that relationship between the settling and then something that opens up. So just to say that, and I think a lot of people have talked about that, but um, anyway, I'm interested in other people, other, uh, other people here who might have responses about creative activities, but first, Emily, if you have anything to say about music in response to, to Laurel. Um, well, one thing I do a lot of is, is free improvisation. And, um, and it's interesting because it, um, I think that it, it can be ultimately extremely playful. Um, uh-huh. but, but it's also something that can become infiltrated by very, um, person centric ideas like competition, um, or, um, yeah, I think competition becomes, it can, can sort of infiltrate it. And I just, I noticed that as soon as that becomes is part of the culture surrounding uh, a session of free improvisation, it really feels like the playfulness is, it, it, it really, um, I think, erodes any hope of playfulness. You know, it, it, can, it can be much harder to access that. So I, it, I've been thinking about how those two things are a little bit opposed. Um, it's really hard to be playful when you're also very self-aware and, and really kind of, um, and, and, and I think that that, um, that's, that can be so present in music and sound and like sound can carry an ego or it can carry just the sound. Um, John Cage writes a lot about that. And, um, yeah. and so, yeah, it's, I, I don't, I'm not, it's different. It's very different than words because um, I think sound can be more abstracted a lot of the time. So that, that might be a bit of a difference, but, um, but I think that the, um, the process of maybe trying to overcome a creative block isn't necessarily different. Just trying to have that free flow between your, um, your somehow your, your essential self and what you're doing. Not Stephen Akmanovich says like, trying to feel your heart through your fingertips or however you're playing. But anyway. Do you write, do you, com- do you compose music? I, I do a bit. Yeah, I do a bit. It's not like the only thing I do for sure, but um, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. So, so you have all these rules you have to follow, or there are a lot of rules that are out there. I don't know that you have to follow but then within that, you you can be as playful as you want, right? It's sort of like a contradiction. <laughs> and the the rules help actually. With yeah. no rule, with no framework, it's much harder. Right, of course. Asian's hand was up, and then Dylan's. Let Dylan go before me, because um, I've already spoken. Let let everyone go before me. <laughs> <laughs> Humility. Well, I, w- I was uh, just in conversation with uh, Emily and, and uh, Gyoshin about um, improvisation and, uh, you know, there being less ego. Um, maybe either of y'all can correct me if I'm wrong. You know, one of the, my favorite things about jazz is when, when it is really playful, um, that there's a, there's not... You can you can hear that the musicians, if there's really good chemistry, there's not really a self consciousness about making a mistake, um, which I think is applicable to life too. But like I think of um, uh, Jimmy Cobb in Kind of Blue, where there's that famous like cymbal crash at the beginning of So What, 
that um, when he did it, he thought he made a mistake because he'd never hit symbol like that before. But now it's like a super iconic moment in in jazz and sort of like the 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 big entry point, like the the first drum hit of like a Rolling Stone or something from from. Uh, so it's um, when when that that chemistry and that playfulness is really um, uh, uh, cooking, you know, to use the to use the jazz word probably. That that the 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 self consciousness about what's a mistake and what's not gets let go, and that's when some of the the new stuff, you know, can can come out. Um, but may, I don't I don't know if Emily or as as a professional musician that that makes that's true or not. But that's as a listener, that's that's what I kind of listen for a lot. Yeah, I think that's what Sontag was talking about. The nut, you know the the uh, un, untethered <laughs> part. I think we're afraid of our nut, our nut, our nut part, the nut part of us ourselves. I know I am. Ron Bass had his hand up, and then Yosan and Nation. Thank you for that wonderful talk. It just sparked thoughts in so many directions. Uh, one of the most one of the, uh, most entertaining and cogent Dharma talks I've ever heard. Uh, I was thinking about how I love reading a good memoir. Currently, I'm in the midst of Goodbye to All That by Robert Graves. He's talking about mm. his experience trenches during World War One, mm. and he wrote it in the he survived the war, obviously. He wrote it in the late 20s to finance his permanent move from Britain to the island of Mallorca, where he lived till the age of 90. And wow. Tons of great poetry and, you know, also supported himself with potboiler novels like I Collide. Uh, personally, and, and I, I don't recoil at the idea of writing memoir, but it's last type of writing that I would want to do only because I find that when I get into a meditative state, I find myself almost following a breadcrumb trail and being spoken to by characters who I find far more interesting than I do myself. One example, in 2000, I wrote a story titled Maoist Cannibals Ate My Homeland. Title comes from a, I never, I haven't published it yet. Um, title comes from a film, a fiction film that's being made by one of the characters in the story. It's a fiction film about the making of a documentary film about the Chinese annexation of Tibet in 1950. But different part of the story. The, and the point is that I encountered a character named Laurel Coverdale, who was a former psychobilly singer who had a, a fluke hit song with her song Mandela's on my pillow, changed careers, became a counselor and was CEO of a very popular uh, uh, and successful company called Prehab Incorporated, which supplied pre-rehabilitation services to the uh, kids of rock stars, Hollywood stars, hedge fund managers, etc. Company's tagline was, so they won't fuck up the way you did. But in one, <laughs> in one part of the story, she is explain. She's in her early forties. She's explaining to uh, an artist in the in his early twenties, and she's flirting with him in the dog run in Tompkins Square Park. She's explaining to him <laughs> the, how reverse reincarnation works, and that is she explains to him that you you're sufficiently advanced, you can plan out where you're when and where you're going to be born in your last next lifetime and in reverse reincarnation in, in the Tibetan, Tibetan tradition, uh, 49, uh, after you die in the life, the life that you are in now, uh, you are reborn earlier in time into a life in which you will die 49 days before you're born in this life that you're living now. And I just, it's not <laughs> any, any of this is fact. But it was <laughs> it was it was part of the breadcrumb trail, and 
far more amusing to me than anything I can write about my own life. Um, thank so you. So I, I really want to read Maoist uh, Cannibals Ate My Homeland. Is it available? <laughs> Only if I email it to you. Oh, which I, I, would, I would love that. LaurelMRoss at gmail.com. Uh, okay. Is, is it all one all one yeah, word? Correct. Laurel, Laurel M. Mm-hmm. M. Ross at Gmail. Okay, I will send it. Thank you. My pleasure. Oh my goodness, I see Nathan and Jane are here. Hello, Nathan and Jane. Been a long time. There are hands up now from Yozan and also Asian. Um, thank you, Asian. I'll be very, very brief. Uh, I was just noting, I don't know why it didn't occur to me uh, when you were talking. It seems like the obvious thing to notice. You know, you were talking about Susan Sontag's talking about uh, the two aspects of producing art, you know, as being a nut and a moron. And that is strikingly close to just practice continuously like a fool, like an idiot. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's like, it's very, anyway, I just wanted to bring that to your attention if you hadn't noticed it before. I, I hadn't, she actually had four aspects and the, the third and fourth weren't as interesting, but she said the first two were the really the only ones that were the key and the other two were like gravy. So yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, a fool and an idiot. That's great. <laughs> and I just wanted to comment on um, creativity and playfulness by bringing us back to um, our, our practice. You know, for those of you who are studying the Flower Ornament Sutra, there's a chapter later on called the, the people refer to as the Dasha Bhumikas, and it talks about the 10 stages of practice. And they're not really stages, they're just dimensions, but, but the first, you don't move on, you know, necessarily from one to another. Um, but the first one is joy. And um, we can think about our practice as bringing us joy. And, and there's a great quote from Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind from Suzuki Roshi that uh, you should find, you should have some big good feeling in your practice. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is joy. And I think that that's related to playfulness. And it reminds me that um, our, pra that our practice of Zazen is part of our Bodhisattva practice. It's not just about us. It, you know, as we find that joy within ourselves, we're able to bring that joy to others. And, um, and as we find that joy in ourselves, we may think back on our own personal stories with kindness and joy and, and um, in ways that, that can be very healing, like, like I think you were referring to, Laurel. But uh, so, so I want to encourage everyone to find um, you know, joy and in, in your practice and joy for others and, and to bring that joy. And, and I think that that's part of, that's certainly part of the creative process. So thank you for a great, great talk and great conversation, everyone. Yeah, a really great conversation. Lifts my spirits. Anybody else, any other comments before we do our closing chat? I'll, I'll make one more comment, which is that if anybody is interested, we just put four dates in the ancient dragon calendar for um, haiku nature walks, one a month in September, October, November, and December. They're on Saturday mornings for an hour and a half, and we go various places and walk mostly in silence, and we don't write while we're walking, uh, but then we share what we wrote afterwards. So if anybody's interested, you do have to sign up by sending me a, uh, an email so that, um, so that we don't get too many people. But uh, uh, love to do some writing with you that way.
Any any other comments or responses or just uh, additional uh, creative play to throw out <laughs> to throw in? Okay, uh, David Ray, maybe you could uh, give us our closing chance. No, we'll do that first. I'll. Mute everyone, and then share the screen. We'll chant the repentance verse three times before the Metta Sutta. Let's see. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion born through body, speech, and mind I now fully avow all my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion born through body, speech, and mind. I now fully avow all my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. Metta Sutta, this is what should be accomplished by the one who is wise, who seeks the good and has obtained peace. Let one be strenuous, upright, and sincere, without pride, easily contented and joyous, Let one not be submerged by the things of the world. Let one not take upon oneself the burden of riches. Let one's senses be controlled. Let one be wise but not puffed up. And let one not desire great possessions even for one's family. Let one do nothing that is mean or that the wise would reprove. May all beings be happy. May they be joyous and live in safety. All living beings, whether weak or strong, in high or middle or low realms of existence, small or great, visible or invisible, near or far, born or to be born, may all beings be happy. Let no one deceive another, nor despise any being in any state. Let none by anger or hatred wish harm to another. Even as a mother at the risk of her life watches over and protects her only child, so with a boundless mind should one cherish all living things, suffusing love over the entire world, above, below, and all around without limit. So let one cultivate an infinite goodwill toward the whole world, standing or walking, sitting or lying down, During all one's waking hours, let one practice the way with gratitude, not holding to fixed views, endowed with insight, freed from sense appetites. One who achieves the way will be freed from the duality of birth and death. May all awakened beings extend with true compassion their luminous mirror wisdom, With full awareness, we have chanted the Metta Sutta. We dedicate this merit to our original ancestor in India, great teacher Shakyamuni Buddha, our first woman ancestor, great teacher Mahaprajapati, our first ancestor in China, great teacher Bodhidharma, our first ancestor in Japan, great teacher Ehe Dogen, our first ancestor in America, great teacher Shogaku Shunryu, the perfect wisdom Bodhisattva Manjushri. Gratefully we offer this virtue to all beings, all Buddhas throughout space and time, all honored ones, Bodhisattvas, Mahasattvas, Wisdom beyond wisdom, Mahaprajna Paramita.